is a book about things to come. And it tells us as God's people, one thing it tells us is that we should be prepared for tough times ahead. And the people that John was writing to, they were heading towards an increase, well, moving towards emperor worship. But, you know, it doesn't tell us to run and hide or cower in fear. In fact, you know, when we went through the beginning of the book, it tells us why we can be confident even in rough times. It tells us of our eternal heavenly Father who always was, who is now, and will always be with us. The eternal God who was here forever will be forever, and is with us all the time. It tells us of the eternal, all-powerful Holy Spirit who strengthens us, who also is always with us all the time, strengthens us, teaches us, empowers us, comforts us, and tells us of the glorious, eternal Son of God, the faithful witness who came down, gave himself willingly for our forgiveness to wash our sins away so that we could live with him forever so no matter how bad things may get and of course when they get bad it's not pleasant but at any one time however they may get how bad we always have our faithful all-powerful God on our side it doesn't always take away all the pain in fact that's part of the plan but we are to place our faith and our trust and confidence in him no matter how bad the circumstances are. And no matter what takes place on this present earth, we know that our God, our Savior, will conquer all evil and will take us to his eternal kingdom where we will live forever in eternal joy and total fulfillment. Now, as we began the book of Revelation... We saw the Apostle John, he had a vision of the resurrected Christ. And it was a glorious, powerful, overwhelming vision to his senses. In fact, it laid him out as if he was dead, it said. Knocked him to the ground. But it was a vision that highlighted Christ's wisdom, his power, his absolute authority, you know, with fire blazing eyeballs and burnished bronze feet and snow bright white hair showing his wisdom, his power, his ability to see through things, see through people. I mean, it just knocked John to the ground until Christ lifted him back up. Christ brought him to his feet, told him to write what he tells him, and he's supposed to send it to these seven actual first century churches, churches. And these letters to these churches give us great insight as to what Christ expects of churches and what he expects them not to do. And these first seven first century churches were in kind of a, a circuit in western Turkey. And they say that even the mail went along that circuit. So it was, it was just, you know, the apostles and Christians and missionaries using that same circuit to get the gospel around. So what we're talking about 
is Turkey, Western Turkey, north of Syria, which is north of Israel. Now, as we begin to look into this letter, John is to give to this first church of the seven, I have a question for you. Now, I'm sure that as Christians, we all agree that as followers of Christ, it's good for us to have a basic knowledge of the Bible. And even more, if we can. Because the Bible is our book, isn't it? The Bible, the, the Bible is life, and the Bible is eternal life. But here's my question after that. At what point, or under what circumstance, is it not helpful for someone, or even a whole church, to have a lot of Bible knowledge? Is there a time when that becomes a deficit or a hindrance? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So it will teach us to be careful. We're going to be in chapter 2 of the book of Revelation this morning. The beginning of chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at one particular church. And I will begin with the very first part of verse 1. And that's going to take a little bit of explaining in itself. It's not moving there, Adrian. Okay. It says, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, it begins with, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So Jesus wants this first letter to go to one particular actual church in the first century and it's in the city of Ephesus but he tells him to write it or address it to the angel of the church now every letter in this, this chapters 2 and 3 are he's going to tell them to address it to the angel of the church so does every church then and today have its own angel well, you know, the meaning of the word angel is actually the word messenger. So it's also used for earthly messengers. So most Bible scholars think that these letters are to go to a primary leader of that church. And they believe that Christ is using the word angel to refer to a human messenger carrying a heavenly message. It's like he's given this emphasis that this is coming from heaven, a message from the God, the Son himself. But, you know, actually some people believe that maybe it was a, a heavenly angel assigned to that church, kind of like a guardian angel, you know, that we think that for children. Although I don't know how that would work out. I, I don't know that I would pick that as my first choice, you know, how do you deliver a message to an angel but anyway, I'm sure it could happen if that's what it is. We know that each individual letter goes to a particular church addressed to a particular person. You know, whether that be a leader or an angel. But let's look at the rest of verse 1. It says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand 
and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, remember from the Gospels that Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. From that we know and from other things, we know that Jesus is the head of the church. Uncontested. He purchased it with his own blood. He earned the church in a sense. And when it says he holds the seven stars in his right hand, it means he is the authority over these churches. Jesus is the king over the churches, the ruler over the churches. The Bible says that the stars are the leaders of the church. And so Jesus is the authority over the leaders of the church. That's what it's saying here. Any leader over any church, any leaders over any church, Jesus is their authority. And he says he walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, we also learned last week that the churches were the lampstands. The leaders, you know, the angels were the leaders, the, uh, the stars, and the, the lampstands were the churches. It says he walked among the seven golden lampstands. What that means is, or what that signifies, is that Jesus is among the churches. He's right there in the church's midst. He's not aloof in his ministry to the churches. He's not an absentee landlord just to come and check every once in a while. He's right there in the midst of his churches. His churches are what he died for, what he sacrificed himself for, what he, what he spilled his blood for. He cares for his churches. He is invested in his churches on earth. He cares about them. And in this passage, he's now sending his churches messages to help them in order to help them do what he wants them to do and to earn their rewards and to live out their life uh, as followers of him. And you know, Jesus himself, of course, lived a human life on this earth. And he himself faced troubles and hardships and rejection and suffering and mistreatment and death. I mean, Jesus, I'm sure, went through worse things than almost any human ever. And even now, in his exalted position of glory and authority and power, he can still totally relate to churches and any problems they have and any person, any follower of his and any suffering that they go through. He can relate totally. And he knows how to end up victorious. And so now he's going to begin his assessment of these churches in Ephesus. And the first part is the good stuff. So look with me at verses 2 and 3. Of Revelation 2. He says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's a good report, isn't it? They got some strengths in that church. 
hard work and perseverance. They really work hard for the Lord and they really persevere. They hang in there during tough times. That's what perseverance is. You don't turn away. And he says you don't grow weary. They're willing to jump in, do the work it takes. And then it seems like the particular work he might be referring to, maybe above the others, is protecting the church from false teachers. Even some who were claiming to be apostles. And he says, and you found out that they weren't. So some of that work that they were doing must have been really learning the scriptures because they could spot falsehood and they could stop those people. And you know, if people are coming into the church and in those days they could come into the church gathering, they would go into homes and they would try to make money off of people by pretending that they were that way they were teachers. And some of them they said were trying to be apostles or trying to act like it. Well, you know, in order for the people of the church or the leaders of the church to stop that, they're going to have to know the true doctrine, aren't they? They're going to have to be familiar with the scriptures. They're going to have to study the scriptures in order to stop people who are coming in preaching false doctrine. And, you know, those people who come in, oftentimes they're very talented people, you know. They're very outgoing, and they can kind of win people over just by their attitude and their manipulation, and so these people who are protecting the church, they have to be wary of that. They have to be sound on the scriptures, and they have to be insightful into people. And Jesus commends them for testing these false teachers and then discovering that they are truly phonies. Now, that takes time, doesn't it? It takes a knowledge of the scriptures. I have seen churches that have been seriously hurt and maybe you have too, maybe even torn apart from people who come in with their own agenda and are just kind of accepted right off the bat because they're winsome people. You know, they, they give off a good impression and you're always glad to have people come and visit your church. <clears throat> but some people would come with a hidden agenda. And if they come in and are gifted and winsome, sometimes... In some places, they just get put into leadership right away. And, you know, they're likable people, but then, you know, things don't always go so well. And so, some of these people, at some point, their motives begin to emerge. Some years ago, I was talking to a pastor who had let a new person in the church start up a counseling ministry. And this person came from, you know, far away, you know, in, in the States, a state far away. And they had been trained under this certain counseling uh, method, you know, Bible counseling method. And they had gotten a certification from this, this uh, way of teaching counseling. But the person that came to the church wasn't well known. They had just kind of moved here. And they ended up causing serious hurt in the church. And it really took its toll. You know, it takes time and wisdom to allow people to take authority or have authority or lead certain ministries. It takes effort and time to become familiar with the person or with the area that they want to work in. But in this Ephesian church, 
these leaders, they were on the ball. They did whatever it took to discover that these people were false apostles and their efforts paid off big time. And so Jesus commends them for this. But now we're going to turn the corner and it turns out there are circumstances where a lot of Bible knowledge not only doesn't help, it may even hurt. So look with me at verses 4 through 6. And this is what we really have to guard against as a church, or any church has to guard against it. He says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. That's pretty serious. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, it seems like this Ephesian church was really good on doctrine, really good on knowledge of the scriptures, but not so good on love. Lacking in love. Jesus says they forsake, they forsook the love they had at first. You know, when they first came to Christ, I'm sure their hearts were broken over their sin. And they came out of paganism. They probably learned all the things that they were doing that were so bad. And maybe some were connected to demons. Who knows? But <clears throat> being freed from all of that, their gratitude to God was probably pretty high. And they, they gave God their hearts. They gave Christ. They were so thankful for Christ dying for all of their sins. I'm sure their love and appreciation motivated them also to show love for other people. You know, often young believers, when they first come to Christ, they want to share it with other people, right? Because they've, they've received so much. They've benefited so much off of this, this gospel message. And what Christ has done, they want to share it with their friends. And so that could have been what Paul's talking about, how they did at the beginning. Or, I mean, John's talking about Jesus, actually. <laughs> As time went on, however... It looks like their faith became more harsh, more hardened, maybe a little more uncaring about people. I mean, Jesus is bringing this up as something pretty serious. He says, or else I'll come and take your lampstand away. It means the church will just become ineffective and it, you know, it won't be useful anymore. Perhaps their thankfulness to God for their forgiveness has kind of waned sort of weakened or, or faded. It takes, really, it takes a determination on our part to both stay with the truth and to keep a love for people. I guess it's easier for some people more than others. We also have to keep our love for God and our love and thankfulness to Jesus as a top priority, don't we? I mean, as we move on in our Christian faith, that initial gratitude 
and overwhelming thankfulness can just kind of fade as we just move on into life. And for some of us who are more doctrine-oriented and less people-oriented, I mean, our types, we can slide into these critical attitudes and this judgmentalism. And it seems like this is where the church of Ephesus had kind of like defaulted or drifted. Great in spotting false teachers, but not so great on holding on to that first love that they had for Christ, the, the love that overflowed when they found out that God had forgiven them in Jesus Christ and Christ had done all the work and all they had to do was come to him in repentance and forgiveness. It was the love that broke their hearts in all the right places. Uh, <clears throat> Laura and I spent our earliest Christian years in an atmosphere of trying to find every flaw in Christians who weren't exactly in our camp. And that was just the group that we got put into. And <clears throat> it was real easy for me to flow into that group because of my personality. Now, Laura's personality is and was much more caring and giving than mine. But we were both in that stream. We were both listening to all of that teaching all the time. And not that all the teaching was bad, but it was just that, you know, we're watching you. We're watching you, other Christians. We want to make sure you're doing what we know is right. It, it's good for sniffing out false apostles, but not so good for showing mercy and kindness. And then early in our marriage, we moved to attend a sem to seminary, and we moved into a you know, group of, with a broader mindset than that. Not so legalistic, not so harsh. And so that was a whole new world that we were stepping into, and, and I started really thinking through some things. You know, we had outlawed so many things that other Christians did, and now we were, trying, now we were seeing godly people who were doing those things that we outlawed. And so we had to refigure them. And then I ran across this verse that really changed my whole outlook. And I was just in a, a place at that time and in a mindset where this verse really struck me. And it was the religious leaders uh, came upon Jesus and his followers, and they had just walked through a field, and they'd picked some heads of grain, and they'd rubbed them and, and eaten the grain from it. And the religious leader said, you're going against the Jewish law because you're working on the Sabbath. And so what they said was, you know, the, the law was not to harvest, not to bring in your harvest on the Sabbath. But they considered, the way that the Pharisees did things, they considered if you just plucked a head of grain, rubbed it in your hands, that was working on the Sabbath. They even uh, had things where, you know, you couldn't walk so many steps away from your home on the Sabbath or you're working. And, you know, they told the guy not to carry his mat on the Sabbath. So that's what the Pharisees did. 
And that's the thing that, you know, Jesus is telling these people not to fall into. But then when the Pharisees said that to Jesus, Jesus said, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He said, He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. And that one just rocked me. How can Jesus say that it was good for David to do something that the law said not to do? That it was only lawful for the priests. Now, at that time, I was a pretty young Christian, and I, don't, I didn't know the passage as well as I know it now. But I knew that that passage was an incident where Saul was trying to chase David down and kill him. And David had a group of men, fighters, that were with him, and they would travel just to stay away from Saul, you know. And so David and his men were out And they were fighting people, and they were winning battles. So it wasn't like David was just hungry from a hunting expedition and looking for a convenient lunch. It wasn't that type of thing. He and his companions were being chased down, and they were an army without food. And the bread that the priest gave David was consecrated bread that was meant for the priests, But when the bread got a week old, they would replace it. And that bread that was there, it says in the the passage that it was a week old. But normally it would just go to the priest's families. And so in the law, it tells them to give that to the priest's families. But this this, uh, priest that David ran into, he gave it to his men to eat. So basically what Jesus was saying is that it's okay to give a man, a starving man, bread, even if it was usually given to the priest's families. Because that was an extreme circumstance. But you know, when I read that Jesus said it was okay for David to eat the bread, which was not lawful for them to do, that really shook my world. It made me start thinking, wait a minute. There's something here more than I've been thinking. There's something here more than just a, you know, point a finger at somebody and say, you did this wrong. Not that laws didn't matter or that commands could be ignored. And, you know, the interesting thing about that is that when they said your apostles, your disciples were working, you know, Jesus, most people probably would have said, that isn't working. <laughs> he probably would have argued with them over their definition of work, or people would have argued with them over their definition of working. But Jesus just said to them, you know how Jesus was, he would say things and people wouldn't know how to answer him. He would just leave them confounded, especially the, the Pharisees, because their hearts weren't right. They didn't really care. But what Jesus was saying, he was saying that in certain circumstances, you know, the law wasn't made to hurt people. The law was made to help people. And the law was made to express our love to God. But we must 
guard against becoming like the Pharisees who were always looking for lawbreakers to condemn them. Always trying to show their own self-righteousness. And completely losing the whole matter of love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. And in that place, Jesus also said, you know, when you have an animal falling into a ditch and it's the Sabbath, you help him out. You don't wait till the Sabbath is over. So he's saying, love undergirds all that we're doing. And Jesus tells them, tells this church, who seem to have gone away from love and mercy and kindness to just harshness, he tells them, if it doesn't stop, I'll remove your lampstand. I kind of think he means, if it doesn't stop, you, you'll become something that really isn't even a church anymore. You'll become ineffective and useless for the kingdom. If you keep going down this road of leaving love and grace and mercy and going towards just, you know, nailing people for doing something wrong. He does like the way that they didn't, uh, like the way that they hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Church history tells us, there's, there's a lot of writings about the Nicolaitans back then, tells us that they were a first century sect that engaged in emperor worship in order to avoid persecution and then to accommodate the pagan community. And then there was also a part of the Nicolaitans that promoted living for your pleasures. Satisfy all your pleasures because we're not under the law of Moses. So that was another thing to their honor that they did not join in on that. But here's how Jesus ends this first letter to the Ephesians. Verse 7. He says, Whoever has ears let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the, the tree of life... Oh, wait a minute, I think there's more there. Right? Yeah, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Yes. Oh, that went way back. Can you get me a, to that verse 7 again, Adrian? Thank you. <laughs> Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You remember that the tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, right? And the angel, God placed an angel there to stop them after they sinned, Adam and Eve, stop them after they sinned to going back and eating the tree from the tree of life so they wouldn't live forever in a lost state. He was saving them from being, you know, not having the chance to be redeemed from their sin. But now we're seeing that he's talking about something 
Edenic, you know, as we move on from this life, as the one who is victorious, who stays with Christ, who perseveres, you know, even when things get rough, they will receive what God had planned for everybody from the beginning. It's that victorious is kind of, it's an athletic and military term used in both, both areas. And our victory is when faith, when by faith and perseverance, we are a part of Christ's victory. Christ already has won the victory. So it's not like we have to go out and do it all of ourselves. We just have to be a part of Christ who's already won the victory. And it may cost, may cost us you know, some suffering or whatever. But the victory has been won. And it's our choice to become one with Him through faith, through anything that we may face, to be part of His victory. And He tells these Christians to stay faithful to Christ. Do not fall into emperor worship or anything like that. And to all who are victorious through faith, through their connection to Christ, will eat from that tree of life which is in the paradise of God. God's plan, when he created the heavens and the earth, he put mankind into that paradise. But now, he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and it will be gloriously eternal. But we learn that the part of the victory is to make certain we don't lose the love that we first had for Christ. I think we need to go back and remember what it was like when we first came to Christ. And maybe if you came as a very young child, maybe you can remember the time when it really took hold or you really understood it on a deeper level. How deep his love must have been to go through all he did and allow our hearts to magnify him. Let our minds meditate on what he was willing to go through so we could be with him forever. That's what we do at communion, don't we? So that one day we will eat from that tree of life. We will live forever in God's paradise. It's all waiting for us. He's waiting for us. In the meantime, let's renew our love and devotion to him. Let our love for him soften our critical spirits. And let's go back to the love that we had at first. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message that you gave to that first church. Well, the first church in that circuit of churches. <clears throat> and Lord, we pray that we could take it to heart. And we pray that we could continue to gear ourselves to really loving you with our hearts and really devoting ourselves and our emotions and all that to you. For some of us, it's harder than others. May we not become judgmental, legalistic, but yet loving and sharing and kind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat>